Hello and welcome to the EK Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy brought to you by the ENS Report. I'm Shosha Aidy and today we're doing things a little differently. We've dedicated the entirety of today's episode to highlights from chat I had with Interim Chief Executive of the Environment Agency, John Curtin, who braved the hot seat and agreed to field some questions from the team ahead of passing on the baton in July. He kindly agreed to be a good sport and make the trek into the studio after picking up on a previous episode of the EK Chamber where we mentioned he was a Leamington Spa football club supporter. We'll be looking at lessons from last summer's drought, where bathing waters and pig DNA overlap, making things not happen, and the future of the EA which faces issues with morale as the tides turn on regulators over sewage pollution. If you're an end subscriber, you'll be able to access a feature on our website with further insights and a fuller recording of the interview. So without further ado, let's enter the EK Chamber. I started by asking John how it's been stepping in to fill the boots, even if temporarily, of his predecessor, James Bevan, who stepped down from the role in March. So firstly, it's probably been a bit surreal. So I think you talked about this in a previous episode, but I started as a graduate in the Environment Agency, or actually its predecessor, the National Rivers Authority. So, you know, in the early 90s, joined an organisation. I'm telling you now, back then, I couldn't even name the chief executive, let alone think I'd aspire to it. So it is quite surreal to be chief executive of an organisation that I worked for my whole of my life. And I've been on an amazing journey, but quite a frightening one, which we'll probably come back to, because... When I left, when I think about the early 90s, we still had the Soviet Union, but we had no idea of the power and pace of climate change to come. So I've seen an arc of my career going through where the climate has changed and how we battled into it. But on the role itself, it's a great privilege. I mean, there are 12,000 fantastic people in the Environment Agency and they get up every day to try and make the environment better, climate resilience, climate adaptation, helping communities. So just being a part of that team at the top has just been a great privilege. And I've just been racing around all of the country to try and be with them, see them and see what they do. So it's been fantastic. Wonderful. And in terms of James Bevan as well, I mean, what do you think about the fact that he's, you know, passing the role on now? Yeah, I mean, James had a fantastic period. And I always remember with James, um, so of course, he was a High Commissioner of India before taking over the Environment Agency. And possibly you wouldn't have thought that was the sort of background you needed for that role. And we were all a bit, who's James? And he started exactly seven days before Storm Desmond hit in 2015, which caused that massive flooding across Yorkshire, Cumbria, Lancashire, etc. And we saw straight away that he was on top of how to deal with a major organisation, could do crisis management and be really empathetic for staff and communities, which is sort of at the heart of the culture of the EA. So, yeah, carrying on that baton and that sort of feel to the organisation has been a real privilege. So I'm glad that you brought up this this issue of climate change, Mm. as, of course, it is a challenging time to be, you know, working for the EA. And also it's a challenging time of the year as we come into summer. So in in May, when you chaired the National Drought Group, you raised concerns about how extreme climate shocks can change everything in an instant. Um, Scientists have confirmed that this year we're in another El Nino pattern, which means that new records for global temperatures next year are definitely plausible. So thinking short term, firstly, is another drought on the cards this summer and are we prepared? So look, the weird thing, let's go roll back to next uh, last year and then we'll talk about this year. So what really surprised me about the drought, drought last year, and there have been droughts in this country, is just how rapidly things change. So we have a number of drought stages, you know, potential drought, drought and severe drought that usually take weeks to get through as the summer comes through. But we burn through those layers in days rather than weeks. Okay. And you know, the 40 degree 
temperature record last year. I mean, that record wasn't, you know, half a degree or something in places. It was smashed all over the place. So the game has completely changed. And one of the points I was saying at the National Drought Group is there was a lot of talk about have we learned the lessons from last year? That's great. You should always reflect what you've just experienced. But with the pace of climate change, I'm worried that all we'll do is be as good as last year. And we know what's coming because there are other countries already living our climate future. And what I'm very keen today to, to do is be ready for the drought of 2030. Yes. And so sort of on that question of are we expecting drought this year from what you've seen? <clears throat> so we had a rather crazy weather so far this year. So February was the driest in 30 years. March then happened to be the wettest in 40 years. And that's done as a favour because it's restocked most reservoirs in the country. There are still issues in parts of East Anglia and there's still a hosepipe ban in Devon and Cornwall. But most reservoirs were topped up coming into this summer and a lot of groundwater too because of the rainfall. But again, this heat keeps going. The Met Office do a long-term forecast and they're saying there's about a 45% chance of being warmer than average summer. They also think there's a 50% chance of being normal, but it does mean it's tipping to be warmer. So we just have to be super vigilant now and that's why we're still keeping the national drought group going all the way through the summer yes i think that's you know it's also you know you mentioned this long-term issue as well um i wanted to talk to you about the drought or water resource management plans um so now we're looking at sort of one in 500 year drought scenario which is a change and and you've said we're sort of we're seeing this issue as something that's going to affect us more in the near term. I mean, do you think that preparing to be like resilient by 2039 is is soon enough? Well, the trouble is you never know what next summer's going to be. But what I am talking about is that I don't want to be good for last year. I want to be better for the years ahead. So acceleration of what we do, knowing what we're aiming for, looking at what the climate will be in the future, not hoping it stays as it is. That's That's the key to all this. The chair of the EFRA Select Committee, Sir Robert Goodwell, um, told ENDS recently that his message to the new EA chairman um, would be not to get distracted from talking about the sewage scandal um, by the drought risk. What do you think of that? Can we, is one issue more urgent than the other or more pressing, I should say? Not, but it's all about water. So it's quite interesting. You know the apology by Water UK recently, which got quite a lot of press, all right? Now, look, it's a good first step. But one of the questions I was being asked is, isn't it outrageous that it's taken the public demand and citizen science to change politicians and water companies' view on the value of water? And I was like, absolutely not. That's democracy. That's 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 it working. That's people demanding what uh, the public want. There's a really interesting, if you could just allow me for a second to get a bit geeky, but there's a really interesting survey done by the Office of National Statistics every quarter where they talk to the UK public, a sample of the UK public, and they ask them, what is the most important challenges facing this country at the moment, right? And the last survey was only finished last week. And you might not be surprised to hear that cost of living crisis was number one on the UK public's mind, right? But you might be surprised to know that fourth on that list was the environment and climate change, right? Fourth. So that that's above what the public considers for education, crime, international conflict in Ukraine. The public believe the environment and climate is more important than those things. And the reason why that's really strange from someone who's been around for a few years is what used to happen is when the economy was growing, 
and there was money around. People used to invest in the environment because they wanted green things. But when the economy was stretched and everything was a bit strapped, people said, oh, we can't afford all that green stuff. Let's all go away. We need to do the economy. So that sustaining itself, that belief in the public on environment and climate, even though we've had all of these pressures thrown at the public, they still believe this is important. So I think it's great news that people want a change. The challenge is that people like me running a regulator and managing the people in the environment agency can respond quick enough to it because I can tell you now, there is not a single person in the environment agency that wants sewage in rivers. Yeah, And perhaps here's the most controversial sentence. Actually, I know there's quite a few water company people that are dedicated and working really hard to try and improve the environment. And the one thing that I worry about at the moment is the debate has got toxic and too binary. And I've talked to river trusts who are working with water companies to do fantastic nature-based solutions to treat effluent out of water company sites who are thinking of not doing it anymore because every time they try and demonstrate what they're doing, this wave of negativity and toxicity piles upon them. We're never going to improve if we make everyone the enemy. This is only going to happen if all the people come together and say, we really, really want to change this. How do we collectively work? How does EA do it? How does a water company do it? How does a farmer do it? How do campaign groups, how does the ENDS report help? Because you're getting the message out. You, you, you're championing this as well. You're part of this brilliant new wave of, of green um, enthusiasm. But if all of that energy is against each other, we're not going anywhere. We're just stirring up this toxicity. I tell you, I went out with a water company a few months back <clears throat> and it was a young graduate who was really bright, really passionate about the environment showing me what they were doing to change some of the storm flow overflow element. We walked down and they had their water company jacket on and someone spat on them. And the look on that person's face, it was just terrible. You know, so we've got to be really careful we don't demonise everyone. Now, we need to hold people to account who are knowingly polluting the environment or trying to avoid getting things better. But if we're in a situation where a young expert, passionate about the environment, is being spat on because of the toxicity of the debate, then we're all losing in my mind. Yes, and I think this is a really good point to touch on because public trust has has been yeah. eroded, you know, to this point where it is quite serious. I mean, I've spoken to water companies, um, people working in water companies who have had really horrible messages come through. Mm. Um, so, you know, on a human level, all of us want what's best and sometimes we can be the the target of this negative backlash that's actually for something much broader. But then, of course, we have got this issue where, you know, you're in a position of regulation, but you're working with these water companies. I mean, how, how do you find that balance is one question. But also, you know, there was backlash in 2020, so sort of three years ago about, I think it was um, this revolving door idea. So when a senior executive at the EA started working at Southern Water um, and then stuff resurfaced about whether it's okay for EA staff to hold shares in water companies. Mm. I know you yourself held some in like Seven Trent. So so where do you find this balance between being the enforcer and also, you know, working with these companies without compromising your interests? So I, I personally think it's, it's, it's fairly simple because regulation is a simple thing, right? The environment agency's role is to say, there is, you're allowed, you're permitted to release certain things to the environment within the standards we set to keep it safe and not to damage the environment. And then we check people do that. And if they don't do it, we take action. And there have been 
dozens and dozens of water company prosecutions because I kind of there's this myth that we don't prosecute water companies. There was two last month where the fines came to six million pounds or something. Um, but again, it's quite interesting to be criticised for not prosecuting. I don't want to prosecute any water company. Now, take that out of context. It means, oh, he's going soft on them. No, because that's a waste of everyone's resources. I just want water companies not to pollute the environment. So I'd much work then switch to the other side partnership to work with them of how you can persuade to a new future where wetlands are put in to remove phosphates and nitrogen from effluent rather than me sitting there monitoring it, not me, lots of our people monitoring it and then take them to court when it's gone over a certain level. So I think it's fine and easy. You know, the partnership is the pushing towards a bright new future. The regulation is the stick when they get it wrong and they know that we will be there. But the, my dream would be when you don't need this anymore because they all collectively want that bright future and they will work together. Mm. And sort of in terms of like EA officers who might not be holding the stick mm. when it comes to water companies, is it okay for them to then sort of invest in those water companies as well? Because, you know, with enforcement, there comes fines and, you know, there's that risk of actual like monetary assets. Well, so... I don't know what you you might be talking about me having shares, yeah? Yeah. Well, fine. So we'll yeah. get that story, right? Because this is one of the weirdest stories. I once had 50 shares in Seven Trent Water, which I was gifted and then sold. And those 50 shares came to about £150. So it was really weird because I keep having this story saying, John Curtin, and then because I'm a good public servant, I declared that I had those shares, but they were gifted from someone that passed away. It was 50 shares worth about 100 and something quid, and then I sold them before I became director operations so I'm quite open about that but it's not I don't have 150 quid's quite nice but it doesn't change any of my view on regulating water company because maybe say I'd shifted the share price by 50% while my regulation that might be another 70 pounds it's just not a story is that sort of common practice sort of amongst sort of the environment agency officers to have shares or is it not I don't know but if they have Anyone in the EA has any conflict of interest, they have to declare it. We do it each year. Uh, my daughter works in HSE. She had great fun when she joined declaring me as a interest and I declare her because <laughs> she makes some decisions around environmental regulation that's evolving. So a good public servant will declare their interest and then it is down to their line manager to say, actually, that interest could conflict what you do. And probably quite clearly, me having 50 shares for a short period when I was gifted them wasn't going to change what I did. And sort of moving on then to actually the idea of this this shift against the regulators in a way that we've seen recently. Yeah. I mean, you've had such a long career in the EA and you've said this has intensified, haven't you? I mean, how do we rebuild this public trust? So actually the Water UK apology, which was tricky because it was an interesting apology to say, we're sorry, and by the way, you might have to pay for our apology. I get that dynamic. But no one's going to go anywhere until the water sector put its hand up and said, we have played a part in polluting the environment. Now, I would also say, if you look at the, the pressures on good ecological stations in this country, farming and water companies are pretty broadly the same. So um, I don't want farming to think just because the water companies put their hand up that we're just chasing one and not the other. We will look at the whole challenges on the environment. But a first stage is to admit that you've made mistakes. But my role is to make sure that they follow that with actions and they're pacey and we do them um, do them in the right way. One, one of the interesting bits of the debate at the moment that worries me is when everyone's now pushing for faster, faster around CSOs, uh, storms, overflows, which do need to be adjusted, 
let's just be careful we don't put such quick targets on water companies that they just revert to the high carbon concrete solutions to meet that deadline, right? I'd rather not have 2030 as a deadline if by 2030X, only a couple of years, we have more nature-based solutions on these rather than just force them into a concrete solution because we've got this big reaction. Onto the challenge of, as I say, drought versus CSO, that's the wrong question, I think. They're both about water. And underlying all of this for me is we do not value water enough as a commodity. You know, even when you turn the tap on, do you even think where that comes from? Because it's coming out the environment that you've learned to enjoy and you're now telling the Office of National Statistics is the fourth most important in your mind. If that's the case, all play our small part and all just recognising where that comes from. Yes, and I think what you've brought up there is is a really good point um, because there can sometimes be too much focus sometimes on what, what's making headlines, you know, but is not necessarily the most important thing. So, for example, the headline for the most recent sewage spills was 1.8 million hours spilling into England waterways, uh, which is the equivalent of 200 years. But what does that mean in terms of quantity? Like, how how do we actually get a gist of how much sewage is going in without measuring the volume? Are we measuring this in the right way? So let, let's go on a story for water on here, because I think this is important to me. So like most regulation, we were in a system for, for years of what's called operator self-monitoring. And that's not just water. That's where broadly the idea was regulators would rely on others to tell us what was happening. And in some places that works brilliantly. We have lots of industries that we regulate uh, and that process works. Clearly there was something wrong in water. But let's just remember and recognise that it was the Environment Agency said, you know what, we, I know we had operator self-monitoring, but we now want duration metres on the outflows. Now, off what funded it's great, and government was really behind it, and Richard ben, um, Benyon championed it, but ZA wanted that bit. Then we were getting a bit more into the detail that actually we need monitors at the beginning at what's called flow-to-full treatment to make sure that the treatment works are being fully used before things are spilling. So we're putting this monitoring because we recognise the mistrust. We understand that community groups were there with all of their citizen science. Maybe we should have listened earlier. I would put my hand up to that. But now we're getting these monitors in. We can really know what's happening. And remember, when we first put these flow for full treatment uh, meters in, that's when we started our biggest investigation into water companies called Op Standard, which I can't go into the detail of, but it is the biggest investigation we've had when we really understand what's going on. Now, clearly the key is whether or not all of that is having impact on the environment. And in places it does. But again, it's almost it's always more nuanced than you think. So are we at capacity then when it comes to, is that why we're seeing so much more interest in the sewage problem? Because it is just at a breaking point infrastructure-wise? Or? <laughs> so I, I mean, we now go into theory and perspective. So I'll give you my perspective. So my perspective is, as I said, people have really starting to embrace their environment. I say people more broadly because there are still people that we need to connect to the environment that don't. But, you know, when the fourth most important thing, when everything else going on in the world and people still value the environment, so people are more aware of their environment, possibly because of COVID. Um, That might be a bit too much, but possibly because of COVID, they're connected more to it. I think there has been issues with previous investment in infrastructure that we're starting to see. So we're reaping the rewards of poor decisions made years back and possibly not the right attitude from everyone to make it better. But as long as we respond to that first thing, as I said, it's in, for me, it's not a failing that people are trying to change because of the democratic voice of the people saying, this is important to us. 
we don't accept it, you all need to get better. As long as the response to the last bit is, yes, we will, then that's, that's positive. That's democracy in action for me. That's why I'm pleased, you know, so, you know, ENDS report telling the story, uh, citizen science groups. I met um, a Thames uh, water, well, I went to do the integrated plan for water launch. That happened oh, a few yes. months ago, which is really good. And we, if we get a chance to talk about it, because there is some good elements in that. And there was a campaign group at the outside of um, a swimming group from the Thames called the Blue Tits. And um, they had all their banners and they thought we were all going to shuffle past. But I stopped and talked to them and I said, let's come and show me. Tell me what your problem, show me what the issue is, what the storm overflow is. We're trying to invite to go out and see what they wanted. You can have that conversation, not just ignore them and say, no, my bit's over here and I might get a load of flack. My role is to hear those stories and magnify them and try and make it better. And I think that is um, extremely important, you know, engaging with the people who are also at the front, forefront of these issues um, when it comes to meeting the people who are working um, at the EA. Um, your post recently on how the EA tests bathing water samples and analyzes their quality. I mean, this has been a topic that's been very high on the agenda in public discourse. To you, what's the significance of bathing waters? Are you a wild swimmer yourself? I mean... <laughs> I'm a poor swimmer, but I went out bathing water sampling, as you talked about, with Alfie, one of our samplers there, and he did make me swim because it was all very wavy. But I tell you, look, this is where it goes to a myth. What, what one of the reasons I do that is trying to tell the story of the EA staff and make people think a little bit that we might be a bit more sophisticated than sometimes paint. And the thing I learned most about that visit was what I did is I took a bathing water sample on a Cornish beach, then the sample was collected and couriered to our lab in Starcross near Exeter, which is cutting edge, right? And here's an example. So we took samples to see if there's a coli or other intestinal bacteria in the sea, uh, which gets the headlines. But did you know that the sophistication of that lab is so much now that they can do eDNA assessment, which means if E. coli was found, they can break it down and say, actually that E. coli came from seagulls. So actually that might just be seagulls on a beach or it came from humans right ea go and see an investigation of whether the water company is doing this right job or it's from a cow or a pig right target the farm where that comes from so it's not just we're going around paddling take a bottle of water and say and we publish data at the end of the year the level of sophistication is now knowing what the source is and help drive improvements so i think people need understanding the sort of sophistication in that lab technology and that lab in starcross was the lab that was geared up to test sewage back in COVID to see whether there were spikes in the early stages of COVID. It was completely retooled by that team to help all of us target and control COVID spread. So that's the sort of thing that, again, EA does but doesn't shout about. So it's, it's great stuff. That does sound really interesting. I mean, could, could that have enforcement applications in the future? Could it be mapped that closely? So I think what they're saying now is at least you can break it down. So if you know your catchment, you say, right, this is all coming from pigs. What are the pig farms in this catchment? That'll help. Whether they can get to the situation of knowing which particular pig it is, that's beyond my knowledge. <laughs> They'd have but to go and test yeah, every single Every pig will have to have its own DNA <laughs> tested and just in case it did any crimes in the area as well. But, <laughs> so I don't know, but that already helps. Rather than just saying, oh God, it's a coli. You know, you now know where it's from. Now, the good news is, by the way, for those in North Cornwall, I, the beach I tested had no E. coli or any bacteria in it. So it was all. Oh, and I'm told because they were doing it alongside me, it wasn't just because my poor lab skills, that was the actual sample was, was good. Okay. Well, that's good for me, too, because I'm from Cornwall. So ah, go, I'll man. be one of those people yeah. swimming in the sea this summer, hopefully. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Lovely. And, and we're, we've actually been looking at 
these sort of bathing um, water applications because obviously under the storm overflow reduction plan, um, DEFRA has pledged that water companies will have to improve all storm overflows discharging near designated mm. bathing waters. I think, is it around uh, 2035? Um, with 2050, the date for you know, yeah. more of those overflows to be improved. Um, quite a controversial plan. I mean, do you, do you think this is the right sort of time frame for, for making those improvements? But, but this is this is like anything, isn't it? So, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago, the best time to do it now. So, you know, clearly, as I said, I think a couple of times in the interview we've done, we're living with infrastructure choices making decades ago. So, and I also said that pace is one thing, but let's be careful the pace doesn't drive traditional carbon intensive concrete solutions for the benefit of saying we just want to get out of a world where there's been CSOs. We have been keeping an eye on your Twitter and we saw that you got to be a coma inspector did, for yes. a day. Yeah. Um, coma for anyone listening who doesn't know stands for the control of major accident hazards um, and you were putting a spotlight on this important work because these officers are regulating some of the UK's most you know dangerous or hazardous sites. Um, we did an investigation which revealed some stark sort of failures in the regulation of these hazardous sites particularly in relation to Buntsfield um, which the EA has since sort of omitted and, and have, have actions been taken since then. Do you know? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, coverage? so, I mean, going back to the reason why you saw it is I like to return to work with a person doing the job to learn what the bigger pressures are. And you never learn more about a job than going out with people who does it and talk to them. So, so on Coma itself, we have had challenges retaining the skills because I go back to what I said before about a lot of the EA folk are highly skilled individuals and you need those skills for them to regulate what are highly complex areas. So we have done some work and, you know, from you talking about my um, perception of the business down the years, I think we as a leadership in the environment agency, which I take accountability for, hadn't valued the role of regulation and the careers of regulators as much as we might have done some of the other stuff like flood in the environment agency. So what I'm rebuilding through a program is a career structure for regulators so that they can recognise and grow their careers in their specialisms. I still think we have a challenge about how we pay the market and a really peculiar thing with coma regulation is all of the money that pays for those individuals comes from industry not taxpayers it comes from charges and the industry will tell you i would pay you more if you had someone that could stay longer and get the skills with it so i think there's a good discussion about how we can use more of our money to get the professionals right so we are fixing some of the career path issues i think again we have to be careful because there were some vacancies, but also let's not take away the fact there were some brilliant coma inspectors like the one they saw. Making things not happen is a really weird story because they spend their whole life making sure nothing bad happens. So that's why I want to celebrate them because their success is you never know anything about them. You know, your successes are quiet and your failures are public, you know. So let's celebrate that we do have them. It was interesting to see that these, I mean, these are really massive refineries, industrial plants, is realising that they could be quite vulnerable to climate shocks and starting to look at the advice of EA inspectors now saying, do you know what the new lightning risk will be going forward or the flash flooding or what does your site look like if it's having to every summer operate at 40 degrees centigrade? So they are quite starting to be quite good climate ambassadors on that infrastructure existing into the future. And how is how is that progressing? You know, is there 
a target for when these sites will be climate resilient or is this sort of something that's in the earlier stages of so it's in early stages to a, a change our environmental and, and management system advice so that climate risks are built into also knowing what their own risks are as in so a big one you see at these sites and just as a bit of history for people out there on the coma sites health and safety executive are one of the leads because it's risk to life that when an explosion would would cause a real issue. But what happened back uh, in Europe was there was a massive chemical fire which didn't cause any risk to humans but destroyed kilometres of the River Rhine. So that's why the EA was brought in as a role, to make sure you look, think about the environmental impacts, not least. Imagine there's a massive fire at an oil refinery. What's the first runoff that's going to be is firewater. So our inspectors spend ages making sure there are buns to capture and dive up firewater. So yes, you can put the fire out and stop people being at risk from uh, smoke or explosion, but we've already thought about capturing this water so toxicity doesn't go into the environment. They're the sort of multiple benefits they can do. And now they're thinking about and how that might change for future climate shocks. I think it, it you know, the EA does have a unique challenge and it is a huge challenge, you know, sort of dealing with all these issues that affect every single person in this country. Yeah. I almost imagine it sometimes like whack-a-mole where you're sort of, <laughs> these issues keep popping up and you're trying to like get them all and it is a very difficult task. But, um, you know, with the strikes we have already yeah. talked about and this issue with morale, you know, going forward, how are the negotiations going? Because, you know, we need these people. Yeah. Um, how are, How is that progressing? And are we going to see more hammers whacking those <laughs> moles in the future. I don't I, I don't think of it like that. And it's weird being chief executive, but I've never whacked anything with a hammer, by the way. But <laughs> is you like I the beauty of the Environment Agency is the exposure to all of those things, but being able to bring them together in a place. Because the thing to remember about EA staff is they all live and work in the communities. They're not a London it's not a London for those out there that think there are twelve thousand people in London working in the Environment Agency. Not there are very few in London. They're out in Cumbria, Kent Newcastle doing their thing out there. So I don't see it as a whack and roll. They bring these things together and they connect all those bits and pieces. I mean, morale's interesting. We had a period where it was difficult because, I mean, like most places, post-COVID, a lot of people re-evaluated their working lives, careers. We lost a lot of people. We've now actually got most of our vacancies filled, most. There's still a few specialist areas that are tricky, but most. And they're a combination, quite interesting, about 2,000 new people in the A of fresh graduates that just want to be here and their enthusiasm and appetite to change the world is just fantastic and it it's great but also there's quite a few people who've made mid-life career choices that might have been lucky enough to pay a mortgage and now thinking about what else to do so we're bringing skills in again and i'd say there are always going to be pockets where morale is difficult and as i say valuing regulators in the EA is a, is a big part of what we've been trying to do and pay at the lower grades is still not good enough and needs to get better but generally speaking, if we can just remember and people like yourself talk as well about the positive stuff we do, as well as rightly holding to this account, that every one of us should be thanking EA staff every morning for doing A, the things that you don't even know they're stopping, go pop or splash that we talked about, but them being some of the experts in the country, if not Europe, on their technical field and really making a difference. And most of the time, the problem with the EA is they, they're quite, they don't talk a lot about what they do, they just get on with it. There's one person here does quite a lot of tweets, but you know if they're a, they just get on with their job, and it does affect them. These stories when people will attack them when they do a great bit of campaigning or a great bit of work with the Rivers Trust, and everyone goes, "No, no, no! It's all water companies, and you should be sending them to jail." That's not helping anyone. 
Yes, at the end, we've run stories about how, you know, there's all this enthusiasm because everyone who does choose to work in this job cares about the environment deeply, you know, cares about making a better change. But if they're having to use food banks in some instances yeah. or, you know, not being able to have a good quality of life, that is a really big issue, isn't it? Because we can thank them for all this important work. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing them being thanked, but we're still not seeing them being compensated. You know, pay is a big issue, right? Now, to be fair, there was a recent announcement, which I don't think got quite as much press as I thought it was going to be, where the government has recognised the cost of living impact on public servants and they're all going to get a one-off payment of one and a half thousand pounds, which makes a big difference to some of the lower paid people in the EA. But I do think, and we will be trying to make the case to Treasury about some of these skill sets need to be rewarded to keep them up with the market. I think the thing about the EA that I've learned and I've loved the place and I work and the boys we talked about is there are a lot of people who the EA isn't what they do, it's who they are, but you can only take that for granted for so long. Okay, so, and I'll give you one example. We taught uh, a waste officer in the southeast of, of England starts on £25,000 and a London bus driver starts on 30 thousand pounds Now, no disrespect to bus drivers, they do a fantastic job as well, but that just shows where we're out of market with other jobs and they can be tough jobs if you're especially working in the waste side of our business. You're not up against the best of humanity. So there has to be a real drive but I don't ever want to take that drive for granted for them not to have a, a be no, able to have a good standard definitely. of living. And you mentioned that one thousand five hundred pound payment. I think we did report on it, but our sort of the people we've been speaking to who were receiving it, they were quite negative about it. They said it sort of feels like a bribery to just you know push through um, rather than seeing a long term compensation. So there's been quite a few years of erosion of pay in the public sector. I think you've spoken to different people than me. I'll talk to other people who will go, thank you. Because actually it's the same as nurses are getting. What, 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 I think one of the issues where we weren't being recognised alongside some of the other negotiations that you saw in the public sector. So, you know, I don't think it's, it's going to solve all of our issues. But with the real problems people are facing, I think a lot of people are quite happy that they've got that money to help them through what's some difficult times. I was reading through the minutes of one of the meetings um, that you'd held and sort of your last priorities in this handover period um, were to also improve that relationship yeah. between DEFRA and the EA. Yeah. But, but what is that improvement that needs to be made? Like, what is it that you want to achieve? So what I would like is to build a mutual trust between the delivery organisations in DEFRA and the policy people that are delivering our new future. And I think we spend quite a lot of time checking each other to make sure each other's doing the right thing. So it's a bit more about if you want to see more of my performance data, here it all is and here's the choices I make. Because then DEFRA colleagues will be great allies to produce good spending review bids so we can both get the evidence saying, look, clearly EA is an efficient beast and it needs more money to do these other things. And when it works well, which it does a lot of the times, then one of the examples is the integrated plan for water where you had a policy position put together by really talented policy people in DEFRA, but led by operation experience in the Environment Agency for a plan that I know, again, in a bit of a binary view, said, oh, no, it's all a bit rubbish. I mean, as someone who's worked in water for 32 years because I started as a hydrologist, I called it my water Christmas because there was <laughs> more stuff in there than I'd ever seen in the water world. Who wouldn't want fines 
I don't want fines, but if we have to have fines, being reinvested in green projects rather than just going into treasury. Who wouldn't Has that want? started, by the way? So they're doing different consultations. Okay. So they're phasing the consultations. So they announce the sort of things they want to change. Then most times in government, they will do a short consultation. And I think they're planning um, some of the, they phase these consultations. I think the next one is on unlimited penalties, which is another thing there. But who wouldn't want plastic wet wipes removed? Because there's all of the issues with microplastics and they do cause huge amount of blockages in sewers. So... Um, one of the least amazing trips I did when I go out and about was to remove wet wipes from a sewer, and it's not one I want to do quickly. But you know, we don't. <laughs> we can stop all that. Um, so there's well, lots in that plan. Disappointed as someone who has like all of this water knowledge that there wasn't more on tackling microplastics because I know this has been like a huge topic in Europe. Same mm. with like these forever chemicals yeah. we're talking about, right. but it does feel like in the UK there's not quite as much oomph in that regard. Well, I think. Might not be fair. I mean, the microplastics was removed from all of our face scrubs and all that sort of stuff. You know, that was a couple of years back, wasn't it? So Yeah, 2018. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, there, there clearly is a recognition because they've taken um, the decision around cosmetics. Clearly now we have to have our separate evidence because we're not linked to the same evidence you've had in Europe and it'll be down to the individual priorities of the country. I don't think anyone's turning away from it. I do think we need good evidence to what the impact of these forever chemicals and other bits are. And then the EA is working on some research to work on the impacts of them. So the other priority that you mentioned in this last period of your time at the Environment Agency as Chief Executive, mm. um, you're getting ready to pass on the baton to Philip Duffy, who's currently the Treasury's Head of Growth and Productivity, um, in July that is. It must be quite a strange sort of limbo to be in your position. I mean, what words or insights would you pass on to Duffy? So I've already met him several times and he's actually left the Treasury now and he'd just gone off on holiday. So we had a good chat yesterday as oh, well. Oh, good. You'll have a little break. So he doesn't need much advice because he's a very talented and uh, passionate guy about this stuff. But I know this sounds really weird with all the weights of the CEO role and I've only had it for a few months and I can feel some of the responsibility, but first and foremost, just enjoy it. Because the really weird thing about the EA, but the real special thing about it is you can actually make a difference, you know? Do you remember the Paul Whitehouse TV programme just a few weeks back? Yes. And there's a lot of people saying, oh, it's, it's frustrating and what are we going to do about it? And I said to some of my team, but the real great thing is 99.99% of people turned off that programme, which I thought was good, by the way, turned it off that programme. We're the lucky 0.01% that then go up on Monday to do something about it, right? And if you just recognise that privilege and make the most of your time to make a difference and just enjoy it. I think that's a brilliant note. And, you know, did, did you want to keep this role? I mean, you come from a scientific background because, you know, yeah. you studied at university, even if you then went on to do IT. Um, do you think he's going to struggle without the scientific foundation? I think if you're a leader of any organisation, it's how you use all the talents around you. So, you know, it's been an, an advantage for me in one way is to have all of that knowledge. The disadvantage is I've lived the EA for so long, maybe I'm not giving different perspectives and I don't look enough in on it. So any great leader will use the talents of their organisation and make sure they're helping nurture support and, as I try and do, publicise the fantastic work they do. I just got a little bit of knowledge and a bit of passion that makes it a little bit easier for me, I think. And what's next for you? Will you continue to chair the National Drought Group? So uh, that goes to the Chief Executive. 
So I think I've done my last one of those, but my substantive role in the EA is pretty fantastic anyway. So I'm the exec director of operations, which means I run all of those people around the country that do all of the great things we just talked about, a little bit less of the politics into government. I'm not telling you whether that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just telling you that's the difference in my job. Brilliant. Well, thank you so, so much for coming in today and fielding a massive you. amount of questions from it's the right. team. And I hope you have a safe trip back. No, and thank you for all the work you do. I know occasionally that's the case, but you're here to show the stories, tell the story and, and explore the issues with me. So thank you for the time. So that marks the end of this special episode of the Eco Chamber podcast, but it's not quite the end of John Curtin content. Subscribers new and old can access the full interview and an exclusive deeper dive that delves into topics such as farming inspections, automatic fines, the idea of scrapping the water framework directive, and the one thing that scares John Curtin. So until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>